in 2006, the comedy actor Will Ferrell starred in a fantastic little movie entitled Stranger Than Fiction. Now normally I know we think of Will Ferrell as a comedy actor, especially since he got his start on Saturday Night Live and has had such great movie successes such as Anchorman, Step Brothers, and this year's political satire, The Campaign. But stranger than fiction, in that movie, Will Ferrell plays IRS agent Harold Crick, who wakes up one day to discover that his life is being narrated by a writer. As he brushes his teeth, he hears a voice saying, Harold is brushing his teeth. As he counts his steps towards the bus stop, he hears a voice in his head saying, Harold is counting each step as he makes his way to the bus stop. So Harold learns that he is actually a character in a novel that is being written day by day. And as each day unfolds, he learns more about his own life. Well, as you can imagine, because Harold hears a narrator voice in his head, he thinks he is going crazy. And so he goes first to see a psychiatrist. But in her wisdom, the psychiatrist refers Harold to someone who knows about literature. So Harold goes to see a professor of literature played by Dustin Hoffman. And one exercise that the professor has Harold complete is to take an inventory of the events of his day and keep track of everything that happens and then categorize each event as something that might happen either in a comedy or in a tragedy. So as a diligent accountant might do, Harold keeps a daily task of everything that happens. And so he can figure out whether his life is going to have a happy ending or a tragic ending. At a critical point in the movie, Harold and the professor figure out who is actually the author who is writing Harold's story. They learn that the author who is writing the story does actually live in the same city as Harold. And by the way, the movie is filmed in Chicago. And unfortunately for Harold, this neurotic yet brilliant author only writes tragedies. In every book that she has written, the hero dies in the end. Harold is desperate, so he goes to meet this author and she gives him all the papers that she has written to, that outline the remaining uh, part of the story. And so finally, after he reads it, he gives it to the professor and both Harold and the professor of literature actually learn what is going to happen to Harold in the end. And Harold confronts the reality of what will happen. He stares unbelievingly into the face of the professor and says, you mean you're asking me to willingly face my own death? Yes, said the professor. That's exactly what I'm asking you to do. And that's where the movie clip picks up from there.
just really bad timing. No one wants to die, Harold, but unfortunately we do. Harold? Harold, listen to me. Harold, you will die someday, sometime. Heart failure at the bank. Choke on a mint. Some long, drawn-out disease you contracted on vacation. You will die. You will absolutely die. Even if you avoid this death, another will find you. And I guarantee that it won't be nearly as poetic or meaningful as what she's written. I'm sorry, but it's... It's the nature of all tragedies, Harold. The hero dies, but the story goes on forever. the nature of all tragedies. The hero dies, but the story lives on forever. And so that's how he can learn to face his own death, because he learns that in doing so, his life will become more poetic and more meaningful, and his life will become part of a story that goes on forever. I really love this beautiful little movie, and I want you to know that even while I've told you a great deal about what happened, I haven't spoiled the whole thing. And the reason why I've shared this movie with you this morning is that it is exactly what Jesus asks of us in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. In effect, what is happening is Jesus gathers his disciples together, and he teaches them about life. And of course, Jesus is not just talking about any ordinary, mundane, meaningless existence. No, Jesus is concerned that we live a poetic and meaningful life. Jesus wants us to be part of a story that goes on forever. But the strange thing that is hard for us and his disciples to take in is that when Jesus is talking about abundant life, Jesus doesn't shy away from things like suffering and death. In fact, Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And by the way, Jesus says, I'm heading to Jerusalem to be killed. And his disciples, people like you and me, we are left dumbfounded. You mean you are asking us to willingly face our own death, Jesus? Yes, Jesus replies, that is exactly what I am asking of you. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who want to give their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, they are the ones who will save their life. Indeed. What would it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your life? What would you give for your life? Now certainly there are those who literally die for their faith. But what about those of us who live here in Muscatine where the likelihood of becoming a martyr is you know, fairly slim? What do we do with this passage? Well, perhaps the translation by Eugene Peterson from the message might help us see this 
with new eyes. I actually printed it on the back of your bulletin, on the very back page, and if you'll turn back there, we'll look at the scripture memory verse. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade for your soul? So what Jesus is talking about is a death of sorts, because to deny ourselves means that we have to let go of any part of us, any, the way that we think or any way that we feel or anything that we do that gets in the way of this poetic and meaningful existence that Jesus calls us to. Death to our ego that drives us to act according to selfish desires. Death, death to a false self that we pretend exists and only exists in our minds. Death to the false notion that life is going to be just fine and there's never going to be any way I have to suffer. Death to the belief that we will never die. You see, I think there's so much that we impose upon God we think that if we believe in a certain way that God will make us rich or God will give us that promotion or God will keep us safe or make our children behave or God will make the cancer go away. Now all of these things might happen. You might get the promotion, but then again, you may not. And how will you deal with it then? Will you lose your faith in God when Things don't go the way you always thought they would go. You see, we all have hopes for the future. Promotions, financial security, good health, well-behaved children. But these hopes that we have, they're only half-truths. Hopes that could be realized but also could be taken away. These hopes are good hopes, but they're finite hopes. And so what Jesus is inviting us to is to clasp on to the one hope, the one truth that cannot be taken away. And this is the transfinite hope in God that tells us that God's steadfast love endures forever. You see, that's the story that God whispers in your ear as you brush your teeth or as you count the steps on the way to your car. Jesus tells his disciples three times about rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection. And the reason why Jesus is so insistent and so consistent in his message to us, take up your cross and follow me, it's because it's the only way to true and authentic living. It's the only way to real life. 
or as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, so that you may take hold of the life that really is life. You see, that's why Jesus came, so that we may see with new eyes, that we may become new creations, so that we may cling to the one story that makes all your other finite stories have meaning. I think that one of the things that I will remember most about being your pastor, and perhaps one of the things that you remember about me is the funerals that we have done together. I went through my office this week and counted well over 40 funerals, memorial services, and graveside service that I have conducted here with you since December 2007. And of course, it has been hard, and of course, we feel the losses and we miss our loved ones. And yet, at the same time, right alongside all of that, is the realization that we have faithfully lived out the call of Jesus to take up our cross and follow him. We didn't deny the pain. We don't take the pain and stuff it away and push it down. We haven't spiritualized the pain and say well-meaning but hurtful platitudes like, it was just God's will that this happened. We haven't sung those songs to the heavy hearts. No, we have acknowledged our pain. We have grieved our losses. We have supported each other. We have said that we don't like this and we can't fix it and we can't understand it and we can't make it go away, but we are here together and God is present with us. And if you have felt that what we have experienced together in any way has been real, even in the midst of loss and grief, it is because what we have done has been grounded in the theology of the cross that Jesus invites us to in Mark chapter 8. And so I'm going to run through that theology of the cross, that spirituality of suffering, to talk about how we may suffer in peace as we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. So these 10 thoughts. Number one, suffering. What is suffering? Suffering is facing any experience that you don't like, that you can't change, that you can't make go away, and you can't understand. That's suffering. Number two, not only is it okay to suffer and to be in pain, Suffering will teach us about our true self because of, that, because of that, because of the teaching that suffering offers. Suffering is transformative. In fact, it is only two things that will really change us, great love and great suffering. Number three, but that's not the same thing as saying that God sent you your pain in order to teach you a lesson. That's not what we're saying. Number four, there aren't any shortcuts. 
when we try to shortcut our spiritual life, it affects all aspects of our life, our physical well-being, our emotional well-being, our peace, our joy. There are no shortcuts. Number five, if anyone tries to sell you any type of wisdom that doesn't involve suffering and dying and losing, then they're just selling you a half-truth. For only the things that die can be resurrected. Number six, Jesus on the cross, with his arms spread out to embrace the world, is God's way of saying, I am with you. This is my solidarity with the suffering of the whole world. And so when we are in pain, when we allow ourselves to suffer, that's when Jesus on the cross makes the most sense. Number seven, don't feel trapped by the story of the cross. You are already trapped by some other narrative that is being spoken to you in your head. It is actually the story of the cross that will set you free. Number eight, God has a story, and it is a story about life and freedom and peace. And the reason why Jesus came is so that we can experience and see God's story of life and joy and peace. And so in order for us to follow Jesus, we have to stop putting our own stories first. We have to set those aside. And when we do that, when we allow those stories to die, we suffer. Number nine, just like Harold Crick was told about his own death, you too can give yourself over to another life of your choosing or another death that you would prefer, but it will not be nearly as poetic or meaningful as the one that is gifted to you by God. And number 10, just like I've said at almost every funeral I've ever done, Christian faith means that death is not the end. The story goes on forever. And for that, we can say, thanks be to God.